0: Uh, most of you uh, were aware that last week I was gone, and I do want to thank you guys for affording me a, a weekend off so that I can hang out with my father uh, down in Southern California. Um, he, he celebrates 78 years old this month, and so it was kind of neat to hang out with him and talk and just, get, uh, you know, spend some time. Plus, uh, I've been a Ram fan since 1977. He has been a 49er fan since 1981. And it just so happened that last week, the Niners went down uh, to LA to, to play the Rams, and we were there. I wish the Rams had showed up as well, but, <laughs> but that's okay. As we were, as we were just talking, it's very, there's an interesting phenomenon. As you get older, and you begin to reminisce, as you begin to look at your past, and you, you try to remember, well, what year was that? And all of a sudden, you realize the older you get, the more things just kind of blur together, right? It's just kind of one big blur, and you say, was that, was that in 77 or was that in 82? And, and, and we're just trying to figure things out, and we used to both have very sharp minds, and we'd be able to, to get all of these individual events and knowing exactly when they happened, but now it's like, well, yeah, I guess that happened at some point of our lives. Now, as we we're getting near to the end of our study, this year-long study in the book of Acts, uh, the this, uh, this study of this amazing, unstoppable power of the church of God, all of a sudden it begins to seem like this is a blur. Like all of a sudden things start to run together, like trial after trial after, it seems like there's this one big trial. And the temptation is, is to kind of turn your brain off when we read about another trial, because you're thinking, oh yeah, well that's that's like what we talked about last week or, uh, man, we, we've been at this thing for two or three weeks. Uh, what, what I want you to do is I, I don't want you to turn it off because in each instance where there is trial after trial after trial, there's going to be something that we're going to pull out that's a little different, okay? Now, if you recall back a long time ago when we were in Acts chapter 9, when Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the church, God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, changed his life. Paul was converted from persecutor to apostle. God had given him a commission to go along with that conversion. It said that God had designated Paul to be a chosen instrument to bear God's name before the Gentiles and their kings. Very specific commission. And in that commission, there was a promise that it was not going to be a bed of roses that there was going to be some hardship. And right now, in the end, ending parts of Acts, we're going to find all of these hardships, all of these struggles, all of these trials, as Paul stands before the Gentiles and their kings. Last week, we, we saw how he was in, uh, you know, there in, in front of a guy named Felix, who was the governor. History tells us that Felix was then replaced, because he was ineffective, with a man named Festus. Now, anytime I hear Festus, I think of the old show Gunsmoke. Why? Because Ken Curtis, who played Festus, was actually one of the, the uh, most popular persons coming from a town that I used to minister in, Clovis, California. And in Old Town, there in Clovis, California, there was actually a, a, a statue of Festus. That's how, that's how exciting Clovis was. We had, a, we had a, a cool little story, cute little story about a, a younger family in the church that lived just down the street from Old Town Clovis. Just beyond this picture, there's actually an ice cream store. And uh, this family had walked down, the mom had walked down with her two or three kiddos. And, and this one little girl, cute little blue eyed, chubby cheeks, blonde curly hair. She was fascinated once they put that statue up. She was fascinated with, with Festus. I mean, she was just they'd go get their ice cream and she'd come back and she was just looking at him and she kept saying, hi, hi. And then she looks at her mom and she goes, she goes, Will's sleepy, Will is sleepy. That's Will and he is sleepy, he's not talking to me. And so, so Festus actually became Will as well in my mind. It's just, anytime I think of Festus, this governor, I, I think of Ken Curtis, Now, a couple of weeks ago, we we talked about having a clear conscience before God and man. There's a proverb that says the wicked man flees even though nobody is pursuing him. But the righteous man is as bold as a lion. And that's exactly what Paul is. He's being bold as a lion because though he is going trial after trial after trial, he knows that he is righteous. He knows he has nothing to hide. And therefore, he is as bold as a lion. We pick up his story in chapter 25 of the book of Acts as Luke records this in verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus, not King Curtis, but Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. This should sound familiar because this is what they tried to do with the governor Felix, okay? But Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon. So let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Now, I want you to notice how quickly the Jewish authorities act when the new guy gets in charge. That They have the old guy wrapped around their finger. They want to make sure that they are going to have their way with this new governor as well. And so they have asked Festus to do them a favor, and they want to, again, ambush Paul so that they can kill him on his way to Jerusalem. They want to get him away from the protection of Rome. Now, if you recall, this happened with Felix, where 40 guys said, we're not going to eat anything or drink anything until Paul is dead. That was a couple years ago. You wonder what happened to those guys, whether they had died themselves or whether they had found a way around their solemn oath. But now Festus is in charge, and he's saying, listen, I'm in charge, not you. I'm not going to do it your way, you're going to do it my way, and I'm not going to give you Paul until I get a chance to talk with him first. We pick it up in verse 6. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, uh, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him which they could not prove. Then then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Now, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Now, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. You see, he was a Roman citizen, so he said, No, this is the place I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, then nobody has a right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you Will go. Now, again, no finding of wrongdoing. Um, There is a plea of innocence, a flat refusal to go to Jerusalem. You get the sense that Paul is saying, Listen, I'm not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. And he pulls the trump card out. I'm a Roman citizen. Therefore, I appeal to Caesar himself. Now, I want you to understand pretty smart move, but pretty risky move. Because if you, as a citizen of America, take your case to the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court, and they rule against you, you have no place else to go, right? You have gone as far as you can. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. By appealing to Caesar, Paul is saying, listen, I am putting my life into God's hands and into Caesar's hands. And if Caesar rules against me, guess what? There is no higher court for Paul to go to. So it's a risky move. So Festus now has no choice. It is the law. If somebody, a Roman citizen, appeals to Caesar, well, guess what? God said, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. Remember that? You're going to go to Rome. Well, guess what? He's going to go to Rome. Oh boy, is he going to go to Rome. And he's going to be there in the highest court. But before he goes, there's an interesting development that happens when Agrippa, who is now the the latest monarch of the Jews, a figurehead, if you will, shows up to kind of brown nose with the the new governor. Look at verses 13 through 18. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Now, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, you know, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. You see, as as Festus was relating this matter to to Agrippa, he said, I thought that Paul was a political prisoner, but now I'm, I'm out of my element because I realize the charges are not political. The charges are actually of an entirely different nature. Look at verse 19. He says this, Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. See, for me, folks, verse 19 is the crux of the matter today. We're going to find out Festus is at a loss. He doesn't know what to do with the religious case. It's a religious matter. And for Festus, all religions were pretty much the same. When you've grown up in a polytheistic society, that's kind of how you approach it. Well, all roads kind of lead to the same place, don't they? Now, let's look at our culture today. Isn't that what a majority of our culture believes today? That, that uh, as, as long as you're not hurting somebody else, your view is as valid as their view. Your religion is as valid as their, uh, as their uh, religion. Paul isn't hurting the Jews. He just believes differently. And isn't everyone entitled to their own opinion? Isn't everybody entitled to their own faith? You start looking at how we live today. You look at America. You look at the West. And you begin to see that, you know, as long as you're sincere in your faith, all faiths are equally valid. For Festus, it was impossible to say who was right, Paul or the Jews. You know, Christian, Jew, Muslim. Buddhist, Hindu, secular humanist, atheist, it's all a matter of personal truth. That's actually what's being shoved down our throat anymore, that you cannot stand for one truth. And even though Festus understands that, as he listens to Paul, as he listens to the Jews, and he he hears about the, the resurrection, all of a sudden he realizes that that's something different. There's something different about Paul that's incredibly distinct, something he's never encountered before, and it's there in verse 19. He says, the dispute was about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed to be alive. I have two questions for us today. The first one is this, is Jesus dead or is Jesus alive? Okay. That's a, that's, a, that's a good answer. <laughs> Paul would go on to say in one of his writings that if Jesus wasn't alive, then you and I are to be pitied above all people because we have wasted our hope. We have put our faith in something that is a lie. Now, you guys got to understand this. Our faith, Christianity at its core, is not just a different philosophy okay, about the purpose of life. It's not just a, a higher moral code. It's not merely another way of approaching the supreme being, even. Christianity begins and ends with an extraordinary claim that Jesus defeated man's final enemy, death, as he was raised from death to life. Folks, if this claim is false, what are we doing here? If this claim is false, Christianity should be rejected. Absolutely. If Jesus is not alive, if what we claim as the very basis of our religion, if that is a lie, then we should reject that lie. But, on the other side of that coin, if Jesus is alive, if that is true, the resurrection, then it changes everything. But here's the dilemma that Festus has. How do you investigate such a matter? Well, what was impossible for him, we now actually have conveniently at our disposal some things that we can actually check into those claims and investigate them thanks to historians and archaeology and scholarship and ancient scriptures that have been unearthed there is now a way to investigate if we are willing first of all today i'm going to look at the facts i'm going to look at the evidence the eyewitnesses and then i'm going to look at some evidence but first of all let's look at the facts number one there, there are two facts Number 1 Jesus died. Okay? That is a fact. That there was a man named Jesus who lived 2000 years ago who died. Jewish historians, Roman historians record that event with clarity. We get from them the who, the how, the the where. Crucified by the Roman governor Pilate who had been influenced by the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. That, those are all facts. Jesus died. Fact number two, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Yeah, there are theories of why the tomb is empty. Some people say, well, Jesus really didn't die. That after being beaten to an inch of his life and being then hung on a cross and then being speared through his side, that he just fainted. He swooned. And, and they thought he was dead. And then when they put them in him in the cool tomb, the coolness of the tomb revived him. And all of a sudden, he had this strength to push this gigantic stone away and overpower the Roman guards. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. Okay, that's one of the theories. Another theory was uh, the disciples, well, they remembered that Jesus said that he was going to rise from the dead. And so they went and stole the body. They, they stole the body. That, that's, that's what it is, except for even to the, the week of Jesus' death, they still had no idea that he was going to die, much less be resurrected. And and, and so you're you're giving them an awful amount of credit to to figure this out and to outwit uh, Rome and and, and the government uh, that was guarding the tomb. There there are some people, another theory was the women waking up really early on Sunday morning to go embalm the, the dead body, they just went to the wrong tomb. Yeah, you, you know, uh, like when you get up way too early and, and you're getting dressed and you, you put on two different color socks maybe and, and you, you realize that later on that, oh, I, I must have been kind of tired or uh, literally one time I put the wrong substance on my cereal. I didn't put milk on my cereal. I put water on my cereal. It, it, weird, I know. And, and I was going, what, what's going on? It, sometimes when you're tired, you might go to the wrong tomb except for the fact that if the Jews really wanted to prove that he was dead and had not been resurrected, they could have easily pointed out, uh, guys, wrong tomb. Look, over here, and we produced the body. And yet they could not. There are two facts, folks, that our, that our uh, faith hinges upon. It's not just a blind faith. They're Jesus died, and the, the tomb is empty. Secondly, you have the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses, the, the, the women who saw Jesus alive, the disciples who saw Jesus alive. You might say, well, they, they just hallucinated because they wanted that to be true. But then Paul says at one point there were 500 people at one time. You can't have a mass hallucination of 500 people seeing the exact same thing. They saw him, 500 people. For 40 days, Jesus showed up and sat with people, talked with people, ate with people. There was absolutely no doubt in these eyewitnesses' minds that this was a resurrected Jesus. Paul would even say, out of those 500, some of them were still alive when he was writing his epistles, and he said, you can go and ask them. Go and ask them. Don't take my word for it. These guys saw Jesus alive. You have the facts. You have the eyewitnesses. You also have evidence. Now, what I think is the most compelling evidence was evidence of a changed lives, Because when you compare the disciples of the Gospels with the disciples of the book of Acts, you'll you'll see that something radically happened to them, that they changed, that they went from being these guys that struggled with sin, struggled with understanding, would would hide and run away when Jesus was, was, was arrested and crucified. And all of a sudden you read in the book of Acts this boldness, this willing to die for the fact that Jesus had been risen from the dead. If they had made that up and they were willing to die for that, man, something happened to them. They are bold now that they, they they care nothing for their lives anymore. And if it, they're going to die for him, they will die for him. Something transformed them. It's the same power that transformed Paul from being the persecutor of Christians to being a leader of the church. So we have the facts, we have eyewitnesses, we have the evidence. But here's my second question, and this is the meat of the matter for me, is so what? What difference does it make? What difference does it make that Jesus is alive? Does it make a difference to your life that Jesus is alive? Or are you just going about your life like, yeah, I I guess uh, He rose from the dead, but that really has no bearing on my life. Folks, we've got to understand that the the, the things of our faith need to transform our lives as well. Otherwise, why do we have them? At the Bible college that I went to, we had a professor that was pretty radical. He he had the freshman class where he would teach them about the life of Christ. It was a year-long class. And he'd have these wide-eyed men and women, young men and women, 18 years old, coming in wanting to be ministers, wanting to be missionaries, Wanting to learn about the word of God with these bright eyes, wide eyes, they wanted to come in. And the very first thing he did after he had these forty or fifty kids is he'd take a Bible and he'd fling it across the room, and everybody went oh! like the air pressure in the room just dropped. You know, everybody go, oh, you can't do that. He goes, "Does that bother you?" Yes, yes, that b-. you know they're they're just waiting for the, the lightning to come down from the sky, and he goes, "That's just." He said, that's just, if that does not change your life, it's just a book. Sometimes we worship the Bible as being, oh, this is such sacred. But if this does not apply to you, if this does not change you, then this is just a book. If, if, if Jesus is alive but has not changed you, then it doesn't matter that he's alive. He is alive so that your life will be different. Amen. Thank you. If Jesus is alive, literally everything changes in regards to relationships. Our relationship with God changes. If Jesus is alive, then it means that after he died on the cross, like a cursed man, that God actually accepted that sacrifice he accepted that payment for your sin so that once jesus was resurrected god said yes i can forgive these people because that was an acceptable uh, death that was an acceptable sacrifice and by jesus rising from the dead it showed that god was saying yes i will forgive these people because jesus is alive what man has sought for for thousands of years. A reconnection with the Creator can happen. That relationship is mended. First Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What is a mediator? One that brings two parties back together. Our relationship is mended. It changes our, our, our lives in regards to our relationship. It also changes our lives in regards to citizenship. Because if Jesus is alive, guess what? You are no longer a citizen of this world. Yes, you're in this world still, but you're not of this world. Uh, Your eternal destiny changes. Your mortality, being dead in your sin, has been exchanged for eternal life because you're no longer under the curse of sin and death. Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And check this out. Raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you notice what tense he said seated? That means not not in the future you will be seated, but he sat you by God's right. That means you're a citizen of heaven right now. Your citizenship changes because Jesus is alive. Finally, we are changed in regards to discipleship. Because if Jesus is alive, then what he promised us has come true. The Holy Spirit is now inside of us. Believers and working inside of us to recreate us into the image of Jesus. And our sin nature begins to take more and more of a back seat to the influence and the power of the Spirit as we commit to keeping in step with the Spirit that wants to change us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a living Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Folks, that's what it means for Jesus to be alive. That's the so what. We have a living faith in a living Savior. He's not just a dead man named Jesus. There is no power in a dead man named Jesus. We have a living Lord. Muhammad, dead. Buddha, dead. Confucius, Dead. Every other founder of every other religion, you can go visit their graves today. They are dead. They had no power over sin and death. You go to Jesus's tomb? He ain't there. He is alive. That makes all the difference in the world. I'd invite the worship team to come on up as we conclude our service. We're going to be singing a final song. If you need some prayer, we'd invite you to come on down during that song or maybe even after the service we'll have some people in our prayer room to your left or just even down here in the front row. You know, I, I love movies. The um, movie came out a long time ago when I was working with young people, and so I took them to see Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, yeah, some, some of you guys know that. I love the opening scene because it introduces Bill and shows his mentality and, and how dumb he is. Because it, the, the, the movie opens up in a classroom, and you hear the teacher saying, is that all, Bill? And now you see Bill. And he's thinking really hard. He goes, um, he's dead? And now you see the teacher, who looks exasperated, who says, so Bill, what you're telling me, essentially, is that Napoleon was a short, dead dude. And Bill responds, yeah. That's all he knew about Napoleon was that he was short and that he was dead. Folks, my prayer for you who are disciples on on the path of discipleship is that Jesus would not just be a short, dead dude to you. That he would actually be the king of your life, a living Lord that is showing you the way to salvation and holiness as we put our trust and faith in him. For those of you who are still on the fence, you have not yet made Jesus your Lord. You're, you're on the path of discovery or, or doubt. My prayer for you is that what you may once have regarded Christianity as a dead religion or irrelevant to your life, that as you look around this place, as you continue to fellowship with us, as you begin to see the stories of the people in this congregation and other believers around you, that you'll actually see that they are changed. They are changed people. Not perfect, but changed because of the power of Jesus inside of their life, that they have a faith in a living Lord and you can have that as well. And that maybe one day you would make that decision to cross over from spiritual death to eternal life, to find the fulfillment and the reconnection with your creator that you have been looking for.